What's up, sports fans? It's time for Let Me Speak. I'm Joe Braverman, and on this show, we discuss the big news in the world of sports as heard from me, myself, and I. Here's what we'll be talking about this week. Could the Houston Astros find themselves missing the playoffs? Plus, the quarterback battles in the NFL ahead of the final week of preseason football. And what to make of the feud between James Harden and Daryl Morey. You're listening to episode 86 of Let Me Speak. Time to get things started. Intro, please. Let Me Speak. again here on Monday, August 21st, 2023 for the 86th edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you everyone once again, as I always say at the top, for tuning in wherever you are getting this podcast. And for those that like the one podcast a week, I apologize for being off. If you missed it, last week I was covering as a producer on Jones and Mego with Arcan on WEEI. And I just got to say, It's fun. It's a lot of fun to be a producer. It's such a fun show. Pretty lighthearted. Got to host some uh, traditional segments now and again. So special thanks uh, to everyone on that show. Adam Jones, Megan Adelini, Christian Arkin uh, for making that happen. And to Ryan Garvin as well, uh, main producer. Thanks for not only taking your vacation, for letting me go out there and uh, fill fill in for you. Uh, But for also uh, just showing me the ropes, you know, showing me how uh, some show elements and all that stuff go. So shout out there. But we are back on the podcast stage. And of course, a lot of things have happened in the last two weeks. Of course, it could only take a week for things to change in the MLB. But I've seen a few changes over the last two weeks, specifically in baseball, that have really caught my attention. And normally I have three, you know, three stories, you know, stuff like that. But there's really two sets of things that I'm looking for, and they're both out on the West Coast. It's with both divisions, the AL West and the NL West. And I think the talk of baseball, for those who are standard baseball fans who follow the MLB, has to be the Seattle Mariners. I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, the Mariners have been the best team since the All-Star break. No question about it. Better than the Braves, the Orioles, the Best. I mean, this is the these are some of the numbers that they have. They're 14 and 4 since coming back from the All-Star break. They've got an eight-game winning streak that they're that they once had, and they're currently on a six-game heater that included a three-game sweep against their arch rival, the Houston Astros. I mean, it's been unreal. Not many teams are able to go on this run, and it could come crashing down, but let's just enjoy what they've been doing right now. And just looking at it, it all starts with Julio Rodriguez. Cause I mean, he's the superstar. I mean, every good team starts and ends with who's the best one on that team. And obviously J rod is that guy. I mean, second half number so far has been incredible hitting 352, eight home runs, 30 RBIs and a 998 OPS here in the second half of the MLB season. And not only that, but he is making history. 18 hits in his last five games. I mean, granted, he had 17 of those in his last four games, which was an MLB record. But still, you have to just marvel at the incredible five-tool player that Julio Rodriguez is. I mean, he's up there in steals. He's an incredible center field defender. I mean, obviously, he can hit. We know all about the five-tool. He's got it all. But honestly... It's not the offense from what I've seen that's been carrying J-Rod and Seattle. It's really been the pitching staff because I think their pitching staff is one of the best in the business. I think they rank top five in terms of one through five starters. They've got the second best team ERA in the MLB. And just listen to these guys, you know, these top three starters. You got George Kirby, who's 10-8 and with a 3-2-3 ERA. He's fourth in the league with quality starts at 17th. You have the big trade piece, Luis Castillo, who they grabbed. 
He's nine and seven, also a three two three ERA. He's top ten in strikeouts with about one hundred sixty six. And then you've got a steady Logan Gilbert behind them, eleven and five, three seven seven. And even after trading their closer Paul Sewell, you got to remember this team was at five hundred basically at the All Star break. This team was dead five hundred, not a shot to get into the postseason, and yet here they are. They sell off their closer. And they've just rallied and rallied and rallied. And now they're in the playoffs after sweeping Houston, who's the other team that you really have to keep an eye on as we hit the final month and a half of this season. Because Houston right now is in that third and final wild card spot, only a half game up on the Blue Jays, who can be a streaky team now and again. But I will say that I don't expect Seattle to keep this pace going. But if they even have a semblance of it, Houston's in trouble. They're in huge trouble. And I talked about it the last episode we had about Houston, about possibly turning a corner. I still haven't seen it, even with Jordan Alvarez coming back from injury, um, even with Kyle Tucker in and out of the lineup, stuff like that. They haven't gotten better. I thought they were going to turn things around, but they haven't, okay? Even when they got Justin Verlander at the trade deadline, you think, okay, that's a steady piece in your starting rotation. Not the case. I mean, Verlander, in three starts since returning to Houston, 2-1, and one, 405 OERA, 22 hits, 13 strikeouts, over 18 innings pitched. Okay? That's not good. That's not someone you were looking for in stability. So what Houston did with a gamble on Verlander is that even though he's 40 years old, they expect that the clubhouse and just being back in Houston, because remember, he left last offseason, this past offseason, to go take the money and play for the New York Mets. That obviously didn't turn out well. And now he's back in Houston. They thought, okay, the atmosphere is going to turn things around and he's going to defy age. Not the case. Because even with Verlander at the top of your rotation, you still don't have a very good pitching rotation. And your offense is not what it was. They don't have the depth that they did in their lineup. So when you have one guy like Alvarez, who he's very streaky, you have Altuve, who, yeah, he can get on base, but that power threat that he had in those championship years, that's not there anymore. But uh, Bregman, who can hit for power, but he's not getting on base. You have all these guys, and they just don't have the depth in that lineup. They don't have it anymore. There's really only five hitters where you could say, okay, we got to be wary of that guy. When you get to six through nine, no one's afraid. No one is afraid. And that's the issue that Houston has because they can get by on some poor pitching with a depth filled lineup. They don't have that anymore. And normally when they when their lineup struggles, they have the starting pitching to back it up. They don't have that anymore. They don't have it anymore. So I was high on Houston, but now I'm not because I definitely thought that they were going to be turning the corner. And now they have a big come-to-Jesus meeting after getting swept by Seattle because, let's face it, the the next month and a half is going to be huge, especially this next week and a half. One of the teams that's challenging them are the Red Sox, and they've got them for seven games. So if they go 500, that's still not comfortable enough because you're giving them three wins, and you have a team in Toronto where even if you stumble and don't wipe the Red Sox out of there, the Blue Jays can get right back in it and knock you out of the postseason contention. So I'm wary of the Astros. I don't know if they're going to get into the playoffs. I ultimately just thinking of, you know, who else is out there. Um, You have the Rays, obviously, in that first spot. The second spot right now is with Seattle. And then the third spot is Houston. It's tr- I feel like it's legit like 51-49 right now that they can get into the playoffs because I think Boston is very streaky, Toronto is very streaky, and really those are the only two teams that are challenging them. I mean, when you look at the gap, I mean, the Sox put away the Yankees. Don't worry about New York anymore. The Angels continue to scuffle, even with the best player in baseball right now. So really, Boston is your baseline, and Boston right now sits fifth in the wildcard standing. So... Be wary. If you're a casual fan, pay attention to Houston 
and pay attention to when they face Boston because they're going to face them seven times. And we'll get into the Sox piece more about that. But if the Astros don't make the postseason, that's a scary sentiment considering they've been one of the more consistent teams, cheating or not. They've been in one of the more consistent teams in the last seven years or so in the MLB. But I talked about, you know, staying on the West Coast. I want to look at the Dodgers as well, because the Dodgers are looking like the Dodgers that they do usually around this time. I mean, they've been probably the second best team. If Seattle's been the hottest team, they've been the second best. I mean, they're coming off an 11-game winning streak. They've won 17 of their last 19 games. And really, I attribute it to having stability in the rotation. Really, I do. Because let's face it, for Clayton Kershaw the past five years or so, it's not about pushing him through the regular season. Dave Roberts is all about managing him and getting him at the closest to 100% he can getting to the postseason because he's only made two starts. I mean, he spent more time on the IL this season than he has maybe in his entire career the past couple of years or so. And they didn't have some good pitching around him, at least pre-All-Star break. But then you look at what they did. They brought in Lance Lynn from the White Sox. I mean, four starts. Three wins. ERA, 1.44. That's pretty good to have. And then if you have Clayton Kershaw, at least somewhat being his usual Cy Young stealth. I mean, he's not the Clayton Kershaw that we saw uh, eight years ago. The, those days are gone. It's He's more on the back half of his career. He's not going to be looked at as an all-timer anymore. He just needs to be looked at as a dependable guy where if you need one game to win, that guy can do it. Because then if you have that stability, you have Lance Lynn. You also have Julio Urias, who's 5-1 and one in seven starts since the All-Star break. Then you've got some postseason stability. You know, like I say, for these teams, it's all about stability. And I think I'm not worried about the Dodgers line. Not at all. I mentioned it the last couple of times I've spoken about LA. When you've got Freddie Freeman, Mookie Betts, Max Muncy, J.D. Martinez, uh just to name a, name a few. They've got the weapons. They've got the lineup there. It's a deadly, deadly lineup. Now, am I going to say that if the World Series were between the Dodgers and the Braves, I would take the Dodgers? No. I still think the Braves are the favorites until someone changes my mind. But I'm telling you that the Dodgers can at least challenge them. They can challenge them and they can make it a series. They may not win the series, but I'm telling you, that they can challenge them, no doubt about it, if they keep this up and if they continue having this stability in the starting rotation. So we know the Dodgers are going to the postseason, but the last team, I know I mentioned that I was only talking about two, but I had to throw this in there because I saw it with my own eyes about the New York Yankees. Something I know as a casual fan, you sort of make nothing of it, but as a Red Sox fan, it's very, very fun to see the Yankees struggle that the way they are. I mean, they're 60 and 64. They've lost eight straight. I mean, how many Yankee teams can you say could finish last in the division, a sub 500 record, and just look like an absolute mess? An absolute mess. The answer, uh, this year, savor it. Because I don't know if that's ever going to happen. The Yankees are never in a rebuilding phase. But if they're going to do it, they need to make changes. First off, I said it two weeks ago when we talked about the Yankees. Aaron Boone, regardless, he's out. He's gone. Absolutely gone. They probably should have gotten rid of him last year. No doubt about it. But the other question is Brian Cashman. Because I just found this out while I was uh, producing uh, for Gresham Fourier today. Brian Cashman's been the GM of the Yankees for 26 years. 26 years. Okay, keep that in mind, some of the moves that Cashman has made that's ultimately paid off. You take away Alex Rodriguez, and you got some of his good years. You got you brought Johnny Damon in from the Red Sox. Think of all the other trades. CC Sabathia, he's been here. You brought up Aaron Judge, okay? You got Giancarlo Stanton. You brought over Anthony Rizzo in a trade, okay? The resume for Cashman is more good than bad. 
the only thing is Hal Steinbrenner would uh, put it like this. The conversation always is about uh, the late, great George Steinbrenner, okay? And what would he do in this situation? Hal obviously takes a different approach. George Steinbrenner would look at this team and they would have gotten rid of him, everybody at the All-Star break and blown everything up, brought in a new GM, a new manager. You know, would they win that year and get to the postseason? No, but George Steinbrenner wouldn't watch it for one second. He would make the move immediately. Meanwhile, you've got Hal Steinbrenner, who's basically dug his heels in on Cashman, on Aaron Boone, and even on guys that just are no longer proven anymore. Obviously, you have Anthony Rizzo, who's hurt right now. I'm not putting him in that discussion. But you decide to make a trade for Giancarlo Stanton, who at the time was one of the best hitters, but has had a significant drop-off. You don't try and work your way around that. I mean, no doubt about it that Giancarlo Stanton is nowhere near where he once was, okay? He still has his power, but he's going to do that once every five games or so. He's not going to do that every time. When he's running around the bases like an 80-year-old grandpa, and then when he's hitting 200 with 8,000 strikeouts, but 30 home runs. Are you really going to accept that? Because he hasn't done the home run part at all. So really, if I am Hal Steinbrenner, once this season is over, not even less than an hour before that final game, which I can't remember off the top of my head who it's against, but less than an hour after that final game, I'm bringing Aaron Boone in. I'm saying thanks for your service and goodbye, which I probably should have done last season. I'm bringing in Brian Cashman and saying, listen, I know we gave you a four-year extension, at the end of December, even though we looked like crap against the Houston Astros in the ALCS. But I'm going to let you go because contracts can be null and void. So Hal Steinbrenner needs to clean out the front office before he does anything with the roster. That's the way I see it as a neutral, non-Red Sox fan. If you told me that I wasn't supposed to root for the Red Sox and give your honest opinion, that is my honest opinion right there. Cashman should not be back with the New York Yankees. And luckily, we'll get some answers in about a month and a half or so before the regular season ends and we get into the postseason so we can finally get some answers to those questions. But coming up next, we go from the end of the regular season to the beginning of one as we transition to football in their final week of preseason action. Switching gears, we're going to go to the NFL, and the regular season is just around the corner. This upcoming week is the final week of preseason action. We get one week after that, and then the first Thursday in September. That's when the regular season gets underway, and I'm so looking forward to it, to see some regular season action. Lions and Chiefs kick us off, but really the story when you talk about at least preseason, off the field, training camp, stuff like that, are really the position battles. And of course, the quarterback uh, position is obviously at the top because no position is greater has greater importance in the NFL than the quarterback. But really, when I was thinking about it, there hasn't really been a ton of battles as compared to previous years. Um, normally, when you have you know guys who were drafted, they really got to earn it, and they usually don't decide until this week around that time. But most decisions have been made. I mean, Carolina is already going with Bryce Young. You've got Anthony Richardson already been chosen by the Colts, which, by the way, I'd feel better about him if he had Jonathan Taylor as a full go, but that is not the case. And even C.J. Stroud, I know they haven't officially announced that uh, Stroud won the matchup over Davis Mills, but I ultimately feel like that's the road that they're going down. You know, they're going to go to D'Amico Ryans and say, listen, we drafted him number two. We got to get him some action. So if I had to bet, Stroud would be starting over Davis Mills. But there are really only a few teams that I could say definitely have a quarterback battle going on and is really something to monitor. I talked two weeks ago the last time about Tampa and what they were going to do for life after Brady. And we're, here we are approaching preseason game week three, 
and Todd Bowles still doesn't have a timetable for his decision. So I don't know if he's going to wait until a week of regular season, you know, whenever he's prepping Tampa for it, but he's got to make a decision between Baker Mayfield and Kyle Trask really do. Um, when you, when you look at how the preseason has worked out for Tampa so far, you had Baker start in the first preseason game. Um, and then Kyle Trask come in in relief. And then Bowles said they were just going to flip flop it in game two, but that wasn't the case. Kyle Trask played the majority of it and Baker didn't play play. Now, if you're reading between the lines on that one, you would think that Bowles might be leaning towards Baker Mayfield as a starter because he didn't play. Um, but until we hear it straight out of his mouth, we don't know what Todd Bowles is going to do. If he's going to take the safe bet with Baker, a guy who's somewhat proven in the league, or at least a veteran who kind of knows what to expect, or you have Kyle Trask, who has barely seen any regular season playing time at all. I tried looking up his stats. He's had, like, I think three attempts at a pass. So I'm basically calling him a rookie. I'm basically calling him a rookie. He's a third-year guy who hasn't gotten any action at all. And really, when you think about it, the NFC South is wide open. So this is a really big decision. This is a big decision for Todd Bowles because, I mean, how many people are picking the Saints? How many are definitely locked into the Saints winning that division? Not a lot of people. That's probably the majority, but it's still not a given. Carolina's in a rebuilding situation. The Falcons are in a rebuilding situation. Tampa shouldn't be in a rebuilding posi- uh, situation because all you're doing is changing quarterbacks. You still got uh, Rashad White as your running back. You still have Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. You still have a fairly good defense out there. So Bowles has really got to think about it. And if I were him, I'd be taking Baker Mayfield because he knows what it's like to carry a team and get them into the postseason. He took Cleveland to the postseason, okay? That's a resume within itself. So I would be looking at that and saying, okay, Baker, I think you've won me over. I'll give you the start. So that's the decision I would make, is that Baker Mayfield starts for the Bucks. And luckily, you know, if Baker continues to struggle and he still hasn't turned things around from his last year in Cleveland to then jump to Carolina and then go into the Rams – you giving Kyle Trask just that much more time to develop. I mean, the second best thing for a quarterback, not to it uh, besides playing, is just watching and observing. That's all it is. So I'm not saying Tampa's totally going to be electric if they choose one guy over the other. I'm just saying in Todd Bowles' mind and in Bruce Arians in the front office's mind, the best chance would be to start Baker Mayfield to get a better shot at winning the division. Because, I mean, come on, if you went 8-9 and nine and won the division with Tom Brady in his final season, imagine what you can do with a guy like Baker Mayfield as your quarterback. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I'm not telling you Baker's going to be the next Tom Brady, but I'm telling you, between him and Kyle Trask, Mayfield is the better option. But moving from the NFC South, we got to go to the NFC West, because if you ask me, I think fans who go on to DraftKings, and to FanDuel, who are making their bets for most likely Super Bowl champions, or at least to represent the NFC in the Super Bowl, has to say the 49ers. I mean, the NFC is nowhere near what the AFC is. And if you're asking me about teams that could get to the postseason, uh, get to the Super Bowl in the NFC, the my list on the NFC is much shorter than teams in the AFC. Okay, it's the Eagles. The 49ers, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty much it. I mean, I don't trust the Vikings. I don't trust the Lions. Uh, I don't trust anyone in the South, as I mentioned. I think the Seahawks are a flash in the pan. Uh, I don't think the Giants are Super Bowl team. I, don't, I think the Cowboys are falling off. Um, I, I don't see it. I see Eagles 49ers. And 49ers is the team that actually has a quarterback situation going on okay because they have a tricky situation but in the best way possible think about this this was a team that started four different quarterbacks or played four different quarterbacks in serious time serious time you had trey lance boom ankle gone jimmy garoppolo ankle bam gone brock purdy comes in elbow surgery gone you go in the nfc championship 
You had a guy, Josh Johnson. He gets hurt. He's gone. So you didn't even have Brock Purdy at full potential. And keep in mind, you know, the situation right now is between Brock Purdy and Trey Lance. Let's get that thing straight. It's between those two. And we already know Kyle Shanahan going with Brock Purdy, even when he's back from elbow surgery. But, and this is a big but, Trey Lance, before he got hurt, looked good. And so far in the preseason, and I know it's against backups and second teamers and third teamers, he's looked good, okay? First game against the Raiders, 10 of 15, 112 yards and a touchdown. Second game, Broncos, 12 of 18, 173 yards, touchdown, interception. He led the game-winning drive for San Francisco. So I guess at least for the quarterback battle in San Francisco is how comfortable would Kyle Shanahan be on pulling any kind of trigger on a possible switch? If Brock Purdy continues to struggle, if he struggles and he's he just had a string of good games rather than um, coming in as a guy who was good for seven games and then he falls right off, okay? We don't know that because we don't know if Purdy is that as good as he showed last year or if he's even 100%. You know, how good are his throws going to be even with that repaired elbow and that torn UCL, which is basically for a pitcher is like Tommy John, essentially. We don't know how comfortable that Kyle Shanahan could be if both of those are the case. Will he put in Trey Lance? Does he give Purdy a short leash, even if he is 100%? or close to 100%, but he's struggling. Would he pull Mystery Relevant and get back the guy who they traded almost basically a farm system for? They basically traded two number one picks to go get Trey Lance, and he was going to be the future until he got hurt. Now, do I think it's going to happen? No, I think Brock Purdy is going to stay in there and continue to be the starter. But if there's ever a case where Purdy is barely moving the offense, and they're punting it on three or four consecutive drives. You know, how much time is Kyle Shanahan going to give? I don't know how long that leash is that Shanahan has on the very last pick of last year's draft. We don't we don't know. That's the thing. That's why I'm so curious to watch the 49ers. Is your who would have thought that a number 3 pick and mystery relevant would be dueling it out in a quarterback battle? Let's just keep that in mind. How surreal this kind of situation is. So it's a good luxury to have for Kyle Shanahan. And the good thing is his quarterback, whoever he chooses, has a ton of weapons. We we can document it day after day. Debo, McCaffrey, Kittle. They've got it all. Plus, they've got a strong defense behind them as well. So eyes on San Francisco for a quarterback battle that could be brewing. It's not brewing right now, but it could be brewing. Meanwhile, in Washington... Interesting choice on who they've decided to make their starter because the the quarterback battle for them has been Sam Howell, only played one game for them last year, started the very last game uh, from last year, and Jacoby Brissett, who they signed in the offseason. Now, in any other division, like if they were in the South, they would be favorites considering what they have. Guys like Brian Robinson, Antonio Gibson, uh, Terry McLaurin, and they have guys on the defensive end. But the fact is, they're in the East, one of the toughest divisions out there. You had three teams make the postseason last year, okay? You had the Eagles, the top team in the NFC. I don't think they're going anywhere. You had the Cowboys, who I I told you, I think they're taking a step back, but they're still playoff contenders. Giants, same thing. Step back, but still playoff contenders. Washington ain't getting out of that division. No way. So what do they just do? They decide to go for the young guy, Sam Howell, rather than Jacoby Brissett. So... I understand the move that Ron Rivera is doing, and I understand why he's doing it, you know, weeks before week one, weeks before the opener, is to give him some confidence. But it could also bring him some pressure. Like, if you are a contending team, at least to get to the playoffs, which they were until about, you know, three weeks left in the season. Um, If they were a contending team, I'd say go for Brissett. This guy's proven, and I understand, you know, he... He was able to hold the fort down until uh, Deshaun Watson came in for Cleveland, and he's been a serviceable backup, you know, fill-in for a couple of years now. But just the NFC East is too tough for them to actually try and win. So 
Ron Rivera going with the smart decision. Maybe he got it from upper management, you know, with the new owners. I have no idea. But for a team that's in a somewhat rebuilding phase, Sam Howell is the guy. And I don't even think they're going to be that good. I think I would expect the commanders, which I still hate that name, you know, now with Dan Snyder out, they could possibly change it back to the football team. Um, With Sam Howell, this is a team that I think is going to get a top 10 draft pick. That's initially where I see them falling. Because, like I said, contending team in an easier division, you go with Brissett. But Sam Howell, you know, I don't know if they have a ton of confidence in them. Washington has really had a hard time developing quarterbacks. I mean, the best shot that they had was with RJ RG3, and they ruined his knee. So then you've just gone through a cycle of guys, you know, one after another after another. And it's like, when is one of them going to stick? Honestly, I wouldn't even be surprised if they tanked to uh, maybe try and get uh, one of the quarterbacks in next year's draft. You know, there's a lot of talk about Caleb Williams from USC. You know, do they tank and possibly go for him? We don't know that, but all I know is it's an interesting decision that Washington decided to make. And then the last team I wanted to talk about, at least from the quarterback room, is the Raiders. Because let's face it, it's not ideal, but we at least got a glimpse of what it is. So basically what it is, yeah, fragile Jimmy Garoppolo, who I fully expect to get injured and not be able to play by at least week seven. At that, That's the most. If he goes past that, then nice little golf clap for Jimmy G for staying healthy. Then you've got Brian Hoyer, who's essentially a clipboard. You know, he's not going to get any action because he's just going to be another offensive coordinator. You've got a guy who's only spent one year in the league as a backup, Chase Garbers. And then you've got a rookie, Aiden O'Connell. Now, let's just point it out like this. Any one of those guys gets hurt, they are screwed absolutely screwed because the Raiders would be, they're basically putting it in the hands of a guy who's been hurt every single season since 2019, pretty much in Jimmy Garoppolo. You can't bank on him to last a full 17 game season. You just can't. So that's why I don't think the Raiders are going to do good at all this year. You're not going to put things in Brian Hoyer. I don't trust him to do that. I don't expect these rookies to come out and light the world on fire. Absolutely not. So I don't, understand what the Raiders are doing with their quarterback room, especially when they've got a guy in Josh Jacobs, who's arguably the best back in the league. And he, he did say he was going to hold end his holdout before week one, but still a guy who's not what's, what's the word invested. That's bad news. You got a running back. Who's not invested. You've got a quarterback room who are basically walking on pins and needles. And if they take one bad step, they're going to be done for the year. So I don't know what the Raiders and Josh McDaniels have decided to do here. Couldn't have gotten a better one. I mean, I just don't get it. I don't get what the Raiders plan is unless they're fully tanking, similar to what Washington has been doing. Um, But luckily with these quarterbacks, we'll probably get some answers before the regular season gets underway. I am going to be curious how some of these teams look uh, in the final preseason game that they have uh, this upcoming week. But coming up next... We've got a lot of topics to hit over these last two weeks. It's our quick hit segment where we get as many topics as we can in the span of minutes. Next is our quick hit segment. We got five topics that we didn't get to in our first two segments. So we're going to scram them all and try and crunch them as much as we can into this one segment right here. And I think it's been a pretty much dead period for basketball, but things are starting to spice up a little bit courtesy of James Harden as he continues to make things complicated with Philadelphia. You know the story. If you haven't watched it, he wanted to trade. He wanted to leave. He opted in instead of opting out. Couldn't get find a good deal. Then they say he's going to be traded. Now he's not going to be traded. Then on his trip to China, which is the latest development here, he tells a crowd that Daryl Morey is a liar. Daryl Morey, the man in charge of not only him his time in Philly, but his time in Houston. He called him a liar and said he's not going to play under him uh, during this trip. Now, I would say I'm surprised, but I'm not, okay? 
The NBA obviously opening investigation because obviously you can't, you know, outwardly say things like this. You can't, you know, as much as you want to, and I'm sure many people would, but you can't flat out say that the guy you're working for right now, like you're not going to play for him. That's essentially all it is. It's not necessarily that he's a liar, um, but it's the fact that he said he won't play under him. That's what the NBA has uh, an issue with. And then he decides to clean it up by saying, oh, he was just talking about the fact that, you know, Maury was going to trade me and now he's not going to trade me. I mean, let's just face it. James Harden is a diva, an absolute diva. I thought for sure that he was going to be invested in Philadelphia, uh, not after this past season, but the one after that. I thought he was going to be invested. But the fact is, Harden just keeps up his reputation as a toxic franchise killer. And this is why no team is going to take the bait on him. No one's going to do it. You heard talks about trades with the Clippers. The Clippers don't want to do it because they know they'll get an invested Russell Westbrook over James Harden who can cut ties just like that, okay? And the fact is, with his time in Philly, he doesn't have the power that he did when he forced his way out of Houston and when he forced it out of Brooklyn because he's not that good a player anymore. He showed flashes of it in the semis against the Celtics, but he can't be a consistent guy who has that power, okay? Because he's not as explosive to the basket as he was. He continues to be a playoff choke artist. And the fact is, no teams are going to take this chance on him because he has no loyalty. He basically has no loyalty. When he says, yes, I want to be here, he'll he's basically saying, I will play for at least one season with you. And then I will not want to play anymore if we are not winning. You don't believe me? Ask everyone in Houston. Ask everyone in Brooklyn how that ended up, okay? Because the fact is, when he doesn't get his way, he tries to force his way out. And it's worked. But now is the time where people are standing their ground and people finally, even the biggest doubters of them all, who still put it on uh, management, all these management issues and other players, those doubters have now turned against him, okay? I would say about 95% of people are now against James Harden because he continues to just be disloyal at every possible outset that he can. So I don't know if he's going to play for Philly. I don't even know if he's going to play at all this year because if I'm a other team, I'm not trading for him because yeah, he'll be happy for the first couple of months. And then when you don't win, if you don't win at all, then you're screwed. He's just going to force his way out. And then you're stuck with that fat contract that he's always been given. That's about like $35 million a year. So I understand you know, the frustration sometimes with the situation. It's just as frustrating as the Dame Lillard situation. Um, but at least, you know, on a positive note, I want to swing things in a positive note regarding basketball. And that's got to be Team USA as we get ready for the FIBA World Cup. Comes around every once in a while. And the USA has looked really good. I mean, 5-0 and in their exhibition play with a team that I might say is at least the least talented team uh, for the U.S. in some time. You got to keep in mind that the USA has has trotted out Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, all these guys on the same team. You know, there's been Kevin Durant, Carmelo Anthony, uh, Russell Westbrook, James Harden. They've all been on a team together. I mean, the fact is your leading guy is Anthony Edwards, who's at best an all-star. And then, of course, you've got a budding rookie like Paolo Bencaro. You also got Jalen Brunson, Mikhail Bridges, Brandon Ingram, just to name a few. I think what helps, though, is that Steve Kerr, uh, Ty Lu, Eric Spolster, everyone on the coaching staff has gotten these guys to buy into their roles. Because Anthony Edwards, at, as you heard from Steve Kerr, he's the number one. He's going to be the leading scorer. And he showed it when he scored 34 points against Germany. So if he's been uh, given the top role and no one has an issue with that, that's what's going to make the U.S. successful. It's just everyone knowing their role. Paolo Bancaro who's been played at the center spot rather than the power forward, just has to be that defensive big man. Jalen Brunson's got to be that secondary scorer. Same thing with Brandon Ingram's, Mikhail Bridges. If they know who's sort of in the pecking order, at least uh, with their role, then I think the USA has a really good shot. I think the USA still has the most talented roster among uh, all the teams out there. They might not have the best player 
you know, because you might face Serbia with Jokic or, uh, you know, any any other teams. You have uh, uh, all these international superstars. So when they play these teams, they're not going to have the best star or the most talented player. But they're always going to have the best talented team. Just in terms of Team USA, in years past, teams that have gone to the Olympics and past FIBA World Cups, this is arguably the least talented team. They're still very good, but they're the least talented team. So curious to see how the U.S. will do uh, in the FIBA World Cup. But moving on to golf, though, very surprised to squeeze golf in here. But FedEx Cup playoffs rolling rolling on. There's one more tournament this weekend. But before that, Victor Hovland, my goodness, at the BMW Championship, just lighting the fairway, and the green on fire, shooting a final round 61 to get him up to second place in the standings heading into the final tournament. I mean, it's hard to shoot a 61 regardless, but to shoot a 61 in the final round, I mean, obviously, it's not a major. It's not the Masters or the British Open or the U.S. Open. It's not that. But the fact is, after this tournament, this upcoming weekend, where you get an $18 million bonus, whoo, what a way to shoot your best round of the whole PGA season. And that might help his case uh, for the Ryder Cup because, you know, with him and with Scotty Scheffler uh, shooting well, the U.S. has some decisions to make uh, regarding their Ryder Cup team when it's U.S. versus Europe. So that's just the quick golf minute right there. Back into football, though, because guess what, people? Look at your clocks. Look at the calendar. This Saturday is the first weekend of college football get excited folks it's week zero not week one week zero that means it's not a full slate of games um but there is some game actions i mean you've got navy and notre dame from ireland for all you locals out there umass is taking on new mexico state san jose state's gonna go against usc and the early heisman favorite the defending heisman trophy winner uh in usc but we've already seen some developments uh, in college football, I mean, just today, Jim Harbaugh is going to be serving three games. You know, it might not be that big a deal because these three teams that Michigan is going to play are a bunch of scrubs. But you also got Georgia um, going through, you know, some interesting changes both on the field and off the field. You know, there's been talks about a lot of legal troubles for the players down uh, in Georgia, which is why I ultimately think that a new champion is going to be crowned. I can't tell you which champion it's going to be, though. But the fact is that the Bulldogs have gone through so many changes. Stetson Bennett, longtime quarterback, drafted. He's serving back up with the Rams. Multiple defenders have been drafted. They're gone. Like I said, off the field issues. So Kirby Smart has got a lot of chaos to deal right now. So there's too much chaos in Athens for me to really put a pin down and say, yes, Georgia is going to win another national championship. I really don't think that's going to be the case. And you got to remember, this is the last season before the conferences go absolutely crazy. And we see Texas and Oklahoma and the SEC, more teams from the Pac-12 joining the Big 12 and the Big 10. So really, I mean, it's going to be, it, it's going to turn into chaos. So it might be enjoyed chaos next year, but let's just enjoy this year right now, which all starts this upcoming Saturday. But lastly, we go from football to football. Soccer, that is, and that's Lionel Messi because, my goodness, he has been absolutely insane since his time in the MLS, okay? Seven games he's played in. He's helped Miami to the League's Cup, which is basically an in-season tournament in the MLS. You know how many goals he's gotten in those seven games? Ten. He's got ten goals and one assist. I mean, Lionel Messi is arguably making his case for the best player in the world. I'm mean, Not if he already is, but he's putting his stamp on it that if he can dominate Europe, he can dominate the United States, no doubt about it. But what I'm curious about is where Inter-Miami CF is in the standings. Because when you look at the MLS standings in the Eastern Conference, they are dead last right now. They're at the very bottom, but the top nine teams from the East get into the playoffs. And right now, that ninth team is DC United. They sit 12 points behind them for the final spot. And if they can get to that ninth spot uh, with a few with uh, 12 games left, then they get into the playoffs. And I think if Miami gets into it, they can win it all because they can ride the back of Lionel Messi. No doubt about it. So 
that's sort of the next thing I'm looking at. Not necessarily that Messi is here and that he's in the States. He's playing in the MLS. That's not what I'm looking at. I'm looking at if Miami can get into the playoffs. Because if Messi can carry them on his back and get themselves at least qualified to the playoffs, I have no, I have nothing that would get in the way. Nothing would get in the way of them running the gauntlet and going the distance. That's ultimately what I think. That's how good Lionel Messi is. He can take a team that gets the very last wild card spot uh, in the in the postseason and run the table and go all the way to the championship and win the championship. That's just how good Lionel Messi is. So that was a lot to cover in two weeks, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot more as the weeks come along. But coming up next, for all of you Massachusetts listeners, we got to talk local. It's our Let's Get Local segment of the week. This is our city. Up next, we do what we always do here with our fourth segment. It's local time. Let's get local talking about the Patriots and the Red Sox this week. I know everyone, or at least some people at least, are wondering, what do I think of the first preseason games uh, from the New England Patriots? So, Two things. First off, you know, from the immediate standpoint, number one, obviously wishing nothing but the best for Isaiah Bolden after that scary injury uh, against Green Bay. If you haven't seen the video, you know, I probably would recommend not watching it. But basically what it is, is the Green Bay receiver. He catches it. Then he turns upfield, And that means Bolden can't stop himself. And he runs into his own guy. And he essentially was knocked out. You know, luckily, you know, the it was the absolute. Best case scenario, you know, yes, it is a concussion, but it could have been a whole lot worse. He had the feeling in his extremities, and luckily he was able to travel back with the team. So, you know, good for Isaiah Bolden. I hope he gets healthy and uh, he doesn't have any setbacks from that. So that that's number one. Number two is basically about the offense because all the questions surrounding the offseason was, how is this offense going to look? Is it going to be better than what we saw last year? Well, let me tell you something right now. This offense is already 80 times better than what it was last year. When you look at the play designs that you see uh, against Houston and then against Green Bay, there's actually variety in the play calling for once. That's the difference when you have a guy who's seasoned as a play caller than Bill O'Brien versus a guy who literally got all of his play calls from flashcards that he studied a day before the test rather than years before it, okay? That's what's the difference with Bill O'Brien and Matt Patricia. I mean, and then you look at all the different positions out there. You have Mac Jones, who's able to move the ball down the field uh, against arguably one of the better defenses in football with Green Bay. I mean, in Green Bay, in three drives, he went six for nine with 52 yards. Yes, he did have a, a fumble loss, but still, it was good. And especially when you see him on the practice field and in interviews, you know, he's, Every Patriots Monday here on WEI, he's going to be talking uh, with Jones and Mego. So even in those conversations, you see like a different, a different feeling. Like he actually feels excited for once. And you hear it all the time that he's saying he's going back to having more fun. And that's, you know, that's really what he has to do. And if you have someone who knows what they're doing, you're going to feel pretty good. You know, let's say in your standard job, like if you were a bartender, or whatever, and you were working with other bartenders who knew what they were doing, you'd feel happy about doing your job. But if you're a bartender working with someone with a server who has no idea how to make these drinks, or you're working with a host or a hostess who doesn't know how to make these drinks, then you would feel a little bit more stressed and a little bit more uptight. And as we saw from Mac Jones last, last year, your anger might come out. So the fact that Mac has guys around who knows what they're doing He's going to feel a little bit better about that. So I totally understand. And you can see that he's much more relaxed. I mean, we talked about it on Gresham Fourier today. It was that in that game against Green Bay, he was getting pressure in the pocket from an offensive line that clearly is struggling, which we'll get to in just a little bit. Um, but he's getting pressure off the edge. He's hanging in there, making the throws and taking the hits rather than just dumping it off so quickly. Because remember last year, the pressure would come and he'd just throw it away. 
um, out of bounds for an incompletion rather than just stay in there. Because let's face it, even though it's coming on you, you have to trust your offensive line that they're at least going to give you another second or a half second to be able to make the throw that you want. And I think Mac Jones, which another word about it, uh, that's been the theme of this is trust. And the fact is, it looks like he's got trust in what the team is doing. Now, maybe is he and Bill Belichick seeing eye to eye? You know, maybe not. You know, it usually takes a couple of years for a quarterback and a head coach to literally read each other's minds. I mean, how many years do you think it took for Bill Belichick and Tom Brady to get the uh, get on the same page? For Pat Mahomes, Andy Reid, you know, the uh, uh, Dan Marino and... Um, Oh my gosh, I'm I'm so sorry. I'm blanking on the the coach's name. Um, Don Shula, my goodness, uh, Dan Marino and Don Shula, all those guys. So, how how many years did it take all of them? Okay, it's not gonna all of a sudden be an instant connection. So the fact that Mac Jones can at least you know work under him is good, and he definitely looks good. He looks good on the field. Now, as far as the other positions, I'll just say this about the receivers that. If you are in any PPR fantasy leagues, points per reception, I would strongly think about drafting Kendrick Bourne because he looks like he's already Mac's favorite receiver. I mean, you saw it, yes, in his rookie season, uh, in his first year that he really found him. But even when he was playing and he wasn't in Matt Patricia's doghouse, he was effective. Now you're seeing that he's getting back some of that playing time because Bill O'Brien actually sees the talent rather than Matt Patricia just being stuck in his own ways. He's giving him some time on the field, and he loves him. Kendrick Bourne has just been racking it up, racking it up. I think he had three receptions uh, in Mac Jones's drive on uh, four targets against Green Bay. Um, and then you also have the depth. So, you know, the the sentiment is that this team does not have an established number one receiver. We know that for a fact. But Mac Jones is going to have his favorites. Obviously, Kendrick Bourne is going to be his favorites. You have Bill O'Brien trotting out the two tight end format. He loves Hunter Henry in the goal line. And then when you have Mike Kosicki, who's good uh, in between the hash marks, um, he can get you down the field, at least from an athletic tight end standpoint. You have Juju Smith-Schuster, who's good in the slot. You know, this team does, there actually might be some depth. Not only that, but if you've got, you know, he's talking a lot about Pop Douglas to Mario Douglas, that is the rookie and you have Kayshawn Booty as well, who's got some good talent out there. That's some good depth. You know, I expect Mario Douglas to make the opening day roster, but I'm sure Kayshawn Booty uh, is going to get in, uh, you know, he's probably going to start on the practice squad and then maybe an injury or maybe some kind of demotion by if Tyquan Thornton might not be doing that well. He might be making room for uh, Booty. You know, that, that could be the case. But there actually is some depth at least at receiver not the most skilled but there's depth um the other side of the offense you know obviously the run back of course big story when I wasn't uh doing this podcast was the fact that the Pat signed Ezekiel Elliott uh from the Cowboys and I think the big one of the big topics at least when discussing uh Ezekiel Elliott were two things one how much does he have left in the tank you know I at least for me you know, he's not like a 30-year-old running back who's basically the tread has been worn out on the tires. I think he's still got some, you know, he's got another good year at least with this team. And the fact that he's complimenting Ramondre Stevenson will be really good. So I think Ezekiel Elliott's going to be really effective. That's the first thing between these two. The second is that the, the other topic we had was goal line situations. And we saw it against Green Bay. Ramondre was getting those goal line rushes. And obviously it was because uh, Bill Belichick didn't play Ezekiel Elliott. But the question is, when you get you know, to first and goal situations, or if you're at the one, who are you trusting to give the ball to to just punch it into the end zone? Do you trust Ramondre, who statistically hasn't had uh, good stats in goal line situations? Or do you give it to a guy who's found the end zone multiple, multiple times in Zeke Elliott? That's the question that I want to know, and I'm sure we're going to get it at least, um, if not the last preseason game when they take on the Titans, um, we'll at least see it uh, in that first game because I'm sure there's going to be some kind of goal line situation. Um, But the last thing I really want to talk about, at least offensively, is the offensive line 
really, I think that's been the biggest concern. It continues to be the biggest concern. I mean, the fact is the tackle position is really scary. It's a scary proposition. The fact that, yes, you have Trent Brown, but when he's invested, he's really good. The fact is he sometimes is not invested. You know, very first play, he commits a false start penalty. You have a guy in Michael Wenyu who can be great on the right side, um, but the problem is he's hurt. And then you've got other guys like Cole Strange. He's hurt. David Andrews a little bit on the older side. You know, we're not 100% sure what this offensive line is going to look like. So, I mean, it's just basically a wait and see. If this line can get healthy, then you can have some confidence. But the guys that they're trotting out right now, like Riley Reef, um, Antonio Maffi, City Sow, it's it's a dangerous proposition to have a couple of rookies on there. Um if, if your line isn't healthy. So that's really going to be the biggest thing. And then, you know, everyone wants to talk, you know, Malik Cunningham. I don't know what Bill Belichick's plan is him. Um, you know, I think you can't give up on him surely uh, purely based on his talent because he's so athletic, but I really hope that even if he doesn't make the roster, I hope he can sort of slip through the cracks and get onto the practice squad. Um, because I do think he has the potential just from a talent standpoint that he could play a receiver or be a third quarterback, you know, something like that. Um, so that's really what I want to see with the Patriots. And I'm sure we'll get some some more answers once we see that final preseason game uh, this upcoming week against Tennessee. But moving on, though, let's talk Red Sox because they just continue to flash these inconsistencies. But for some crazy reason, they're still hanging around. I mean, how do you go from losing two of three to one of the worst teams in baseball in the Nationals, but then you go ahead and sweep your arch rivals in the New York Yankees? I mean, are you kidding me? That is the definition of inconsistent. I mean, they basically knocked out the Yankees, which I'm sure, like I said, around here in Boston, that's a good thing. But they have the talent but they just can't be consistent enough, okay? Look at the lineup the way it is. Even your seven, eight, nine guys. You have Connor Wong, who hit a home run as your catcher. You have Pablo Reyes and Luis Urias going on a tear right now. I mean, two grand slams in two consecutive pitches for Urias. You've got Pablo Reyes, who's hitting 362 in the month of August. You pair that with a guy like Masataka Yoshida, who's been steady, in terms of getting on base, he's got a three over a 300 average. You got Rafael Devers, who's a Yankees killer, who maybe that could turn things around. You've got Justin Turner, who just continues to grind it out, even with that bruised heel injury. You have Tristan Casas, who can flash the power. I mean, the, the thing is, when you looked at the trade deadline, was that these injured guys can't be the be-all, end-all, essentially. But they can be okay, and they can at least make contributions. And you're kind of seeing the jolt of energy. I mean, when I first saw it, it was when Trevor Story came back. I mean, Trevor Story, let's face it, he sucks right now. He absolutely sucks right now. He's 8 of 39. That's for a 205 average. And he's got 14 strikeouts in the 10 games that he's played since coming back from injury and making his uh, season debut. Okay. But look at the defense. Look at a guy who can actually play shortstop at a very strong level. And you saw that made that was influenced over on the second base side with either Reyes or Urias over there. You've got Tristan Casas who's making good plays over at first base. Rafi Devers isn't making an insane amount of errors. So even the defensive influence of Trevor Story has been felt. Okay. And then even with the pitching staff, you know, I think. The problem that the Sox have had for many, many years has been the bullpen. They've got that locked down with a terrific setup man in Chris Martin and a closer in Kenley Jansen. The fact is, now you've got a starting rotation where you're not trotting out bullpen games twice out of every five games or so. You've got Nick Pavetta that you can use in a bulk role once every five days rather than go to bullpens twice every five days. You've got guys like James Paxton, like uh, Brian Bayo, like even if you have Chris Sale and you give him four innings or five innings, that's still better than what you had. Then you move Garrett Whitlock because you trust him more in the bullpen rather than a starter in terms of coming back. Now you have Tanner Houck who's coming back during this Houston series who, again, you're not looking 
for that dominant stretch to where he was before he got that facial fracture, but you're looking for at least five innings or so. Just give them five, as Cora likes to say. He did enough for us to win. That's what you're looking for, and you need it now. You need it in this crucial stretch coming up because you have seven games against the Houston Astros over the next week and a half. I talked about it with Houston. If you can win those set of games, you know, you've got a three, a four-game set starting in Houston tonight. Then you've got three against the Dodgers at home. Then you bring the Astros home for three games, okay? So you've got seven games against the Astros with a three-game set against the Dodgers squeezed in between. If you can win that stretch of games, if you can go four and three, you're going to have a much better shot of getting into the playoffs. So even if they go two and two in this stretch, if they can take two out of three the next time they play the Astros, that's already much better than where they once were. Just think about it like that. If they can go four and three in those seven games against Houston, then they can get into the playoffs. Their chances will go up as long as they don't falter. That's just how I see it. Even if they take three or four this week from Houston, boom, you're in a wild card position. You're in that final spot. And all you have to do for the last month or so of that regular season is hold on. That's really what it is. So I'm really hoping and praying that the Red Sox play as well as they've been playing against these really good teams and rather not play like crap when they're playing against these crappy teams. So there is a chance that the Red Sox can find themselves into the playoffs. Um, But it's just, it's all around exciting here in Boston. You've got the Patriots starting their year. You've got the Red Sox maybe getting into the postseason. And then before you know it, the Bruins and Celtics are going to get started. So it's very exciting time here in Boston. But we wrap up our show as we always do on the lighter side with our LOL moment of the week up next. Now to end our show, as we always do, we get on the lighter side of sports and look at our LOL moment of the week. And before we do that, I did want to inform uh, these listeners here of some news. We're recording right around 6 o'clock or so, but I just want to let you know that per Adam Schefter, the Colts have given all pro running back Jonathan Taylor permission to seek a trade. So Jim Ursay finally caved in, finally caved in to Jonathan Taylor and just realized, you know what? This isn't going to work. It's not going to work. So Jonathan Taylor wins between in the battle of Ursay and Taylor. It's Jonathan Taylor who gets his wish, but Turning back to our LOL moment of the week. Of course, this has been a tradition. We're going to the baseball for this one. A tradition the past couple of years or so is for a couple of MLB teams to play a game in Williamsport, which is where the Little League World Series is. So with that in mind, it's the setting of who gets our LOL moment of the week. And we're going to go to the Phillies' Bryson Stott for this one. And I want you to look at these pictures very closely because what you see is basically a giant number two pencil that he's using as a bat. Now, don't don't get freaked out. That's an actual baseball bat, but it is designed to look like a number two pencil. I mean, talk about playing in front of little leaguers, taking that to a whole new level. I mean, first off, I think it's tremendous that MLB is doing this, that they're taking uh, these games once a year, uh, and going to Williamsport, you know, doing the Field of Dreams games, the London games. I like that they're doing this kind of stuff. And I really like how the Phillies took it this year, because not only that, but you also had three stars uh, from the Phillies, Bryce Harper, uh, I think Trey Turner and Nick Castellan, or no, Kyle Schwarber, uh, Trey Turner and Bryce Harper. They all were in the stands for a Little League World Series game. So I love that the players are also embracing this. As well, and I love that Bryson Stott. You know that we saw we we saw if you if you saw the game, you saw a bunch of you know custom stuff. You had a uh, Bryce Harper with uh, a custom bat that was like the Philly fanatic, but this one right here takes the cake by Bryson Stott, an actual number two pencil. Which honestly, you have to really double take and really look at the caption to see that it's actually a baseball bat because the resemblance is totally uncanny. 
totally uncanny. Like, first glance is that it's just a giant oversized pencil. Like, that'd be something the Savannah Bananas would be using um, during their world tour. So props to Bryson Stott. I don't know if he made a request that he wanted it to look like a number two pencil, but, I mean, the graphics or uh, whoever makes those bats, you know, has that bat art or whatever. I mean, a nice little golf clap for that one, you know, just considering the fact that it looks so lifelike. And it just gave me a nice little chuck. I mean, it's also good strategy because think about it. You know, they were playing the Nationals. Imagine um, whoever was uh, pitching for there. Um, you know, I couldn't tell you a single National, even though I saw them last week play the Red Sox. Um, think about it on the mound. If you've got a guy who's holding what looks like a giant number two pencil, how can you not be distracted by that? Rather than looking at your catcher for the signs or hearing the pitch calm or whatever, you can't take your eyes off of that bat because it literally is just absolutely surreal. And I think little leaguers enjoyed it just as much as the big leaguers did. So Bryson's thought for having a little bit of creativity during your time in Williamsport and making it look like you batted with a number two pencil, you earned yourself this week's LOL moment of the week. And just like that, episode 86 has wrapped up. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this edition of Let Me Speak, wherever you're getting your podcasts. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or if you're watching us on YouTube for a little visual action, uh, thank you for watching this episode. Back on our standard time. We're going back once a week. Uh, Of course, follow us on social media. We've got pages on Instagram and Facebook. All you got to do is search Let Me Speak podcast you've been listening to episode 86 of let me speak and we will see you next time later